If you have a copy of the scriptures, I'd invite, to, invite you to look with me in, Re, in the book of Revelation. This morning, we're going to be looking at chapters 6 and 7 and the first five verses of chapter 8. So we're going to look at the six, or excuse me, the seven seals together. As you're turning there, just know I'm going to read a sample from chapter 6, 7, and 8 to get a sense of what's going on in those chapters. Um, but before I do that, just want to remind you and do a little bit of, um, you know, thinking together about where we've been in this book because it's important. So the first four weeks of January, the first four weeks of this year, we tried to nail down four preliminary principles to understand the book of Revelation. In other words, if you don't lock in on these principles, you will go awry in your interpretation of Revelation. You'll get a much different interpretation of Revelation. And these four principles are really, really important. In, if, if, these four principles are really important if we're going to understand Revelation. So here's principle number one. God always completes what he starts. So when God set up the world in a certain way in Genesis 1 and 2, that's how things are going to end up. God has purposed for us to love him, love people, and love place. He has purposed for us to glorify him. He has purposed that, we, that his glory will be spread throughout the world. That's going to happen. Sin can't stop it. So we can't understand Revelation without starting at the beginning, Genesis 1 and 2. Second, we have to think about time the way God views time. We have to think about time in the way that he does. So when you read the New Testament, what you find is that the last days started with the coming of Christ. That means that Revelation does, is not the book that begins to tell us about the end times in the last days. We have been in the last days since the coming of Christ, some 2,000 years. Third, we need to have a humble posture when we come to the book of Revelation. There are things we know, and there are things that we don't. So when we come to the book of Revelation, we need to have a humble posture. The book was not written so that we would analyze it like we would the book of Romans. It is a picture book that gives us images that are meant to affect us like a child looking at a picture book. Fourth, and perhaps most importantly, preliminary principle is this. Jesus actually accomplished something. Jesus actually accomplished something. He is a literal, real Savior. He actually saves people. If you don't think of that, if you're not convinced of that, then probably your greatest hope when you read Revelation is that you escape through some rapture. And I'm telling you, that is not biblical at all. That started in the late 1800s and has permeated our country. Jesus actually accomplished something. And when you believe that, it dramatically affects how you look at the book of Revelation. For those are our four preliminary principles. Here's where we've been so far in the book. And I'm doing this because it's really important that we get the momentum of the book. It really matters because the book is glorious. So chapter 1 of Revelation, we look together at this. That verse 3 of chapter 1 tells us that the book is written to be a blessing. So if you've ever studied the book of Revelation and it has instilled fear in you, sorry, you got some bad teaching. The book is not meant to scare you. It is meant to be a blessing for those who read it, for those who hear it, and for those who do it. It is not meant to terrify you, but to bless you. Chapter 1 also tells us in verse 19 that the contents of this book are about the past, the present, and the future. So if you've ever been taught that the book of Revelation is about all future, not right. If you've been taught that it's all past, not right. It's about the past, 
the present, and the future all the time. And finally, the book is meant to reveal the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first phrase of the first book, first chapter of this book. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's meant to reveal Christ. Chapter 2 and 3 were the seven letters that Jesus wrote to the churches that expresses things that we always struggle with and the church has struggled with throughout history. Chapters 4 and 5 give us one reference point for the entire universe. So how are we going to deal with these struggles that Jesus talks about in chapter 2 and 3? Chapter 4 and 5, the throne. The throne of God is the one reference point for the entire universe. Take that in. It's the one reference point you need for your life because it is the reference point for the entire universe. There's nothing that goes beyond this reference point. This is it. The throne of God is it. That is the reference point for everything. You might remember that in this throne room we looked at together, there was a, a scroll, there was somewhat of a book that God was holding in his right hand. And Jesus was the only one who was worthy to take that out of his hand and then to break it open and to help us understand it. So that's where we come today. In chapter 6, 7, and 8, Jesus is taking the book and he is opening it up. He is unlocking each of the seven seals. So chapter 6 through the verse 5 of chapter 8 are about these seven seals, and we're going to look at that together today. Make sense? I know it's a lot, but it's important, I think. And if that confuses any of that confuses you, please come up to me afterwards. I'd be happy to sit down with you and try to explain things even more if I can. But listen to this, Revelation, a sample of 6, 7, and 8. This is God's Word. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Chapter 7. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the, elder, around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. 
chapter 8. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and the seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Makes perfect sense, right? Clear as can be. Let's pray and let's ask God to help us. Lord, we thank you for your word. It is true. Work into us, Lord. Work into us the good news of the gospel today. Help us to see Jesus. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would work into us the good news more and more. That we would not only see Christ, but that we would worship him. We pray in his name. Amen. Remember, the book of Revelation is not a code book. Yes, I'm repeating some of my introduction. It is not a code book. It is not meant for those who are the smartest people that can get to the most granular expression in the book and therefore unlock its secret meaning. It is not a code book. It is a picture book. It is written for us to be like children that look at images, and the images are to fire up our imagination and fire up all that we are, the whole of our being, for God. Meaning... It's one thing to read through the New Testament and read statements like this. Christ is on the throne. It's another thing to look at the book of Revelation and to see it, right? And when you see it, you have that image that impacts your mind, it impacts your heart, it impacts your emotions, everything. So that the lasting images that are in our minds are full of Christ and the gospel. So remember... Christ is the only one who can take the scroll out of the Father's hand. Christ is the only one who can explain that to us. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to unpack these seven seals, which just means he's explaining to us what God's intentions are for the world. So we're going to start here. We're going to try to see what John sees. That's our first point. We're going to try to see what John sees. Now, that means this. I would love it if you had in your mind just a gigantic mural, and let's just start painting that mural together, all right? We're going to try to paint what John is writing, and we're going to try to see the images that he portrays, and we're going to try to see what he sees. So, chapter 6 begins with the first four seals. You notice that there are four horsemen. You remember that in the scriptures, a horse is a symbol for war. So if you're thinking about Christ entering into Jerusalem during this time, he didn't enter on a horse, did he? He entered on a donkey, right? He was not coming for war. He was coming for peace. These four horsemen are representative or representing war. There are four different colors. The first one is a white horse. The second one is red. The third, black. And the fourth is pale. So when you start thinking about these horses, look at what it says about the white horse. It says that this horseman has a crown on his head and he goes forth conquering and to conquer. It means that this is the horseman for war who claims victory. But let me tell you the secret. It's counterfeit. 
The real rider of the white horse comes in chapter 19, and he comes with a sword in his mouth, meaning the word of God. This is a counterfeit savior. This is an antichrist. This is someone who says, I've got the way that you can make it in the world, and I will go about it with my power. And if you just follow me and exercise my power, you will get whatever you want. You will follow me, and we will conquer because I've already conquered. The second horse is red. And this one is symbolizing more blood and more war. Look at what it says, specifically uh, to take peace from the earth. So if the white horse, the first one, was meant to say, I'm the one who's the victor, I'm the one who's conquered, follow me, and it's not, it's a complete antichrist, this one is saying, oh no, you all need to be angry at each other. You all need to be fired up with rage. You need to look at the world around you and just be ready for war. Pull out your swords and get bloody. As if to say, well, I'll put it this way. Do y'all see a lot of rage going on in the world? Is there a lot of, is there a lot of disruption going on in the world? Have you, have you noticed that people find it super easy to be upset and angry? Maybe like me, you've noticed that it seems like there are more and more people who thrive on being angry. It's as if their day doesn't feel complete until they get really, really hot, angry at something. I noticed this. Um, I looked this up yesterday. Did you know that there are rage rooms? There's one in Morrisville, North Carolina. It hasn't come to Greenville yet. But there are rage rooms where you can pay for a certain amount of time to enter a certain room and just smash stuff and get out all of your anger and frustration and rage. Look, there is a problem in the culture that we live in if you can monetize rage. The red horseman is exciting rage and anger. The red horseman wants everyone to be angry at everything. The red horseman wants rage to be the emotional climate of the world and the culture. Third is a black horseman. This one's a little bit harder to figure out if you just read it quickly. The black horseman seems to talk about famine, but it's really bizarre because it's not as though this black horseman wants to touch wine and oil, but he wants to affect barley and wheat. You see, barley and wheat are basically what you need to make it every day. When it talks about a wage of a Daenerys, that was basically a day's wage. So what's being communicated is actually this. This horseman desires for there to be a lack of what you actually need to live and an overabundance of all the luxury items that you could want. Sound familiar? So what you really need in life is really hard to come by. But what is luxurious is everywhere. You see, this is communicating spiritual famine. It's communicating that this horseman loves it when people are obsessed with luxury. And he loves it when what people really need is short supply. Short supply. 
I remember listening to this song a number of years ago named Kath. That was the name of the song. It was written about a woman who realizes seemingly at the moment of her wedding day that she actually was living someone else's dream. You know, she had grown up in a certain way. She had done everything that she was taught. She had followed the plan. She had checked the boxes. She was just doing what everybody expected her to do. And she was miserable. But she couldn't get out of it. She couldn't get out of that mold. Why? Because she was living someone else's dream. She wasn't expressing her own thoughts. She wasn't expressing and making decisions based on what she wanted. It was always other people telling her what to do and how to live. Maybe this is a combination of what John Paul mentioned a number of weeks ago, like a lawnmower parent and a helicopter parent, right? Where the child ends up growing up feeling all this pressure to do certain things. Beloved, don't you think the modern world has less and less to live for? Really? Look around you. Do you sense anger everywhere? I do. Do you sense that people want to excite conflict all the time? I do. It seems to me that the modern world in which we live has less and less to live for. We have individualized ourselves to death. And technology is the opiate of our culture. We just entertain and entertain and entertain that we have a hard time finding true friends, correct? Do you realize how hard it is to be truly, genuinely friendly to people? Because if you are, people are super skeptical of you. And people are so hurt and people have so much going on in their lives that they really start off with not trusting you or anyone. We live in a culture that literally is individualizing ourselves to death. We want to create our own identities. We want to create our own meaning. And no one else can speak into our lives unless you agree. It is unbelievable. This world is offering us less and less to live for. I hope you see that. Don't you, aren't you going to wake up tomorrow morning and think to yourself, if you're willing to be honest, man, my life, my job, it just feels like an economic activity. I just go to work to help the economy and increase my economic production. Don't you feel that? The world in which we live is offering us less and less to live for. You can see it everywhere. And yet this is the great dream that we were given. Someone else's dream. It's empty. Gets nowhere. It's spiritually bankrupt, isn't it? The fourth horse is pale. Kind of bizarre because... The color is actually communicating something between green and yellow. Yeah, thinks not. It's communicating infection. It's communicating disease. It's basically saying no matter where you look, what do you see? Snot, disease, things are messed up, nasty, everywhere. Those are just the first four seals. The fifth one is opened up, 
And what we find is that God's people, followers of Jesus, are at the throne. And they're crying out for justice and crying out for mercy at the throne. It means that they have been persecuted, they have been martyred, they have been killed for following Christ. And yet, here they are at the throne, and they're crying out for justice. It's important. It's important because we need to remember that justice is bigger for God than how we typically think of justice. The justice, in terms of how God defines it, is giving people their rights, whether it's correction or whether it's care. It's giving them rights as a human being. And the martyrs here at the throne begging God for justice. You see, we are a people who care about justice because one day there's going to be a judgment. Justice is always connected to judgment. The reason why we want justice is because we know the judge and we know what's true and right. There's no reason for us to ever care about justice if you don't have ultimate judgment. Otherwise, you're just individualizing yourself to death again with your own view of justice. But can you imagine how this would have affected those who received this, those who were in the original audience? Remember, persecution was going on from the year 60 to 100, right? Do you remember this? And there were times where it was super intense. Do you remember this? Do you remember us talking about in the first century, there were those who drilled a hole in the skull and then poured molten lead into that hole? Do you remember this? Can you imagine what this fifth seal was communicating to its original audience for those who may have known the Apostle Paul, for those who knew Peter? who knew that Peter was crucified upside down, who knew how Peter died. You can imagine if you were following Christ in the first century, you would have been thinking, what is going on? Where is Peter? Where is Paul? Where are the other followers of Christ? And God says through John in this vision, they're at the throne. They're praising God. They're praying to him, begging for justice for you and for the world. Can you imagine how that would have encouraged the original audience that they had lost their pastor, they had lost people that they desperately loved, but they were at the throne praising God, even praying, worshiping God because they love the kingdom. Well, the sixth seal is opened up next, and this shows us of the second coming of Christ, the final coming of Christ, his second coming in which he will judge everything and everyone. And what you find when you read of the sixth seal is this. You find that there are those who prefer to run into a cave and have the cave and the mountain fall on them than receive an identity from Jesus. You have those who desire to get swallowed up in a cave rather than face the living Savior. Instead of receiving Christ by grace, they would just prefer themselves to, 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 to die in that fashion. Crazy, isn't it? Beloved, the second coming is meant to be something of encouragement for us, a profound encouragement for us, not because we're great, not because we ever pass the test in our own strength, because Christ has for us. 
And in his return, it means that all things will be made right. Right? So here you have the sixth seal opened up to say Christ is coming again and there will be those who don't want to face him at all. In other words, it's a call for them to say, receive, freely receive the identity that Christ gives. Let him define you, not you define you. And then the seventh seal, which we read at the first part of Excuse me, let me back up. I need to say this very quickly because I want to come back to this. When you look at the second coming of Christ and his return, you think when Christ comes back, it leaves with a question, well, who in the world can stand? That's where chapter seven, uh, chapter six ends and into chapter seven. Who in the world can stand and face this Savior? You got people that want to get swallowed up and you got other people wondering, well, what are we going to do? And all of chapter seven talks about that. Those who stand are those who've been bought by Jesus, who belong by Jesus. And it's so beautiful how it lays this out. If you look toward the end of chapter 7, it even says that Christ is our shepherd, meaning our pastor. It even lays out that there's like 144,000, which is a symbolic way of saying the 12 tribes of Israel multiplied by 12 times a thousand to say there will be no one who belongs to Jesus, who is lost. Every single one of his people will be with him forever. And beloved, we got to leave the rest of chapter 7 for a special attention one day, which I'd love to have that opportunity. I can't today. But chapter 7 is glorious. And that brings us to the seventh seal in chapter 8, what we read together. So the seventh seal opens up, and what happens? Silence. Silence for about a half an hour. What if we were just to sit here for 30 seconds? Could you handle it? How about five minutes? Your lives, my life are so fast paced. How many of us have sat down and just had silence for 30 minutes? It would really seem like an eternity to us just for there to be silence for 30 minutes, right? You know, if, if, if you follow the storyline of Scripture, you can imagine that why is this seventh seal communicating silence? I mean, the sixth seal talked about the second coming of Jesus, and if you follow the storyline of the Bible, what's left is the new heavens and the new earth, right? So why don't we get the new heavens and new earth here? Because we've got a bunch more chapters to go. God is building suspense and momentum in his people he is wanting us to anticipate the return of Christ and then the new heavens and the new earth. But yet here is the cliffhanger. There's silence. Because God is listening and acting. Well, those are the seven seals. I hope it's to some extent you've been able to see what John sees. Let's go to the so what. So what? What does this mean for my life? What in the world do these four horsemen have to do with my everyday life? What in the world does the second coming of Christ have to do with my life? Or, or this silence, what does this have to do with my life? What difference does it make whether I understand this or not? Well, I've got four things for you. I'll try to cover these quickly. Number one, 
when you look at back of these chapters and think about the seven seals and Christ opening up the plan of God for us, you need to know, first of all, all this stuff is happening at the same time, other than the second coming. You'd know it if the second coming happened, okay? But all the other seals, they're happening all the time. Seals one through five and seven happening all the time. What that means is that John is communicating to us and God is communicating to us through John that evil is advancing, but Christ has won. Evil is advancing, it always will, but Christ has won. This is a snapshot. The seven seals are a snapshot of all of history. We've said to you before, and I hope you've taken it in, Evil is real, but it never gets the last word, right? I hope you believe that evil is real, but I really hope you believe that it never gets the last word. I really hope you believe that. You've heard us say that God is going to pull out disease and sin at the root, right? I really hope you believe that. But this is showing you those ideas together. It's saying that even though evil is advancing, it can never go out of this world. There's still one reference point for all of reality. And that God is in absolute control of every evil thing that happens. He never causes it, but he controls it and works it for his good. So that yes, evil is advancing, but Jesus has won. And God has bound evil. He's put parameters on evil. It never gets to the throne. It can't overtake the throne. It can't stop Jesus. It can't stop the Father from ruling and reigning. It can't stop Christ from ruling and reigning. It can't stop the Holy Spirit from having his way in the world. All this is happening all the time. Evil's advancing, but Christ has won. He is absolutely sovereign. And he is working out his purposes in history. Two, God hears you. God hears you. When you look back at the seventh seal and that silence, did you see all the other imagery? You still got a little bit more space on your mural? Still got a little bit more space on your canvas to paint this? Because what you need to have on this canvas with this silence is this. In the midst of the silence, the Holy Spirit, if you go back and read the first five verses, the Spirit gathers the prayers of God's people. That's incense, that's what was described in the Old Testament. And he takes a golden censer and he puts the prayers of God's people with the fire of God's holiness and he puts it into the golden censer and the Holy Spirit throws it over the precipice of heaven and it lands on the earth and there are peals of thunder and lightning flashes and an earthquake. It's communicating to you that in the midst of everything that is going on, evil advancing, Christ is sovereign, that God always hears your prayers and he always acts. So God is always at work. He hears the prayers of his people and he acts on earth. And it doesn't matter if no news media covers the, answering of God, the, the answers that God gives to prayers. Because his people know. And what that means is that God always hears you. Bergen, 
God hears every one of your prayers. Julia, all those prayers you've been giving for all these years, God has heard every single one. Jordan, God knows what's in your heart. He knows what you've been thinking about and wrestling with. He knows your joys. He hears everything you have ever said to him. Noah, God's ears are wide open to you, my man. Every time you pray, whether it's around your meal or before you go to bed or when you wake up, God hears you. Don't ever forget that. Watson's, we have prayed for you and you have prayed. God hears your prayers. You're going to Colorado and you are an answer to prayer for people there. And we're going to find out how God's going to answer our prayers. God hears your prayers and he acts. He loves to further his kingdom. I wish I could go through every one of you. I don't have that time. But I need you to hear me. God hears you all the time. He hears your prayers. Three, invincible. There's one thing in this world that is invincible, and it is the gospel. It is the Lord Jesus. The gospel is invincible. That's what this is showing us. I don't care if you're a history major. I don't care if you're a history buff. I don't care if you know nothing about history. Just bear with me for a second. Whatever you know about the last 2,000 years, you certainly can know this. These four riders have never stopped riding. The white horse, the red horse, the black horse, the pale horse, they've never stopped riding. There have been people who have been giving false messages for 2,000 years. There have been people who have been trying to excite rage and anger in your life and everyone's life for 2,000 years. There have been people who have been claiming that you need to fill your life with luxury and not what is most important for 2,000 years. And there are people who have been stirring up the disease and the, the, um, the infection in the world for 2,000 years. This is what I'm saying. What government has killed Christianity? What false teaching has killed Christianity? What army has killed Christianity? What disease has wiped out Christianity? None. For 2,000 years, these four horsemen have been riding, and they cannot win. They haven't, and they won't. God is telling us that we should live our lives being a little bit more confident than we are. Because most of us make most of our decisions based upon fear. Oh, well, if I do this, all this is going to happen. Stop! Live your life from the one reference point of the entire universe. Jesus is on the throne. And I am not so naive to think that I won't be persecuted in my lifetime. But guess what? This is telling us that if I die for what I believe or if I die for what I preach, I end up at the throne. Is that so bad? 
Now, I pretty much think that I can choose the best way that I want to die, but God doesn't see it that way. This is telling us that the gospel is invincible. It has survived on every continent. It is surviving now under arguably the most oppressive government in the world. The gospel cannot be killed. So please live with a little bit more confidence. Please be willing to take a little bit more risk in your life. Please put yourself out there with other people. Please keep studying the gospel. Please do things that are radically crazy because you know the gospel can't fail. Be a little bit more confident in your life and maybe stop being, maybe, maybe, being, maybe, maybe you should be a little less arrogant too. Do you know how easy it is to get caught up and thinking about life from the vantage point of, oh, well, this is the latest issue. This is the latest issue. This is the latest situation. And you operate through viewing your life just through the set of issues that come to you. Beloved, we should stop thinking that, that the entire weight of Christianity rests upon our shoulders. We should stop thinking that we are the ones that are going to make this thing happen. We haven't done a thing. I've done nothing for Christianity before 1975. Nothing. And somehow the church has flourished and grown. Ups and downs. Persecution and not. Please believe that the gospel is invincible. That's what God is showing us through these seven seals. And fourthly, and I know I need to wrap this up, there are three shifts that happen in our lives individually and happen in the life of a church. Three shifts. And I mean that not to say this is top-tier Christianity and this is bottom-tier Christianity. This is, this is the super Christian and this is just the barely new one. No. I'm talking about shifts that happen in your life. I'm talking about shifts that happen in my life. I'm talking about shifts that happen in the life of our church that you can see it everywhere throughout history. Everywhere. I'm going to use big words, but I'm going to try to explain them quickly and simply. The first one is this. There's a huge shift that happens when you understand justification. That idea of being made right with God. There's a shift that happens in which you really come to grips with. Either it's what Christ has done or it is what you have done. And when you begin to realize that your standing before God is not based upon what you have done or adding to what Christ has done, your life will make a radical shift. Because you will begin to understand that Christ is everything for you. Even faith is a gift. It's not that Christ did his work and you add faith to it and you sealed the deal and you determined your own destiny. No, it's that Christ has done everything. And when that shift happens, you will never go back. You will never, ever go back to thinking that you contributed anything. Now, in your life, you will. But in your head, you'll know, no, Christ has done it all. The second shift has to deal with growth. And it happens when you shift from thinking that my growth is all about my action. Or 
you start thinking that my growth is basically, we'll say the first is the treadmill. That if I'm going to grow, I got to do these five things. I do these eight things, however many it is. And I just do this list all the time and I'm going to grow, I'm going to grow, I'm going to grow. Or the other extreme, if you've had, if you've been on that side for a little while, the other extreme is the hot tub, right? It's not the treadmill, it's the hot tub. It's just Jesus did this all for me, so now I'm just hanging out in this spiritual hot tub and I'm just loving life and I'm not going to exert any effort toward God. I'm just going to let it happen to me. And when you shift away from both of those and begin to realize that genuine growth is knowing for the rest of your life that you are going to grow in your understanding of sin and grow in your understanding of the largeness and ever-increasing bigness of Christ in your life. Massive shift. Because that means your life will actually begin to be about not rules, but it will actually begin to be about repenting and believing in every area of your life. And that means that you'll stop thinking about parenting in terms of got parenting issues or stop thinking about marriage in terms of marital issues and you'll start realizing, oh, I've got many four-part stories going on everywhere in my life. So that my marriage is about the four-part story, not an issue. So that my parenting is not about an issue. It's about the four-part story. So that my career is about the four-part story. How God created me, me understanding my gifts, how I bring sin into that, how Jesus is redeeming that, and then how he's going to restore everything that I'm working for. Massive shift. And the third one is mission. You see, if Christ is for us, justification... And in sanctification, if Christ is in us, then that has to work out in mission. And the shift happens when we move from thinking as an individual or as a church that this is what we are going to do for God to we are part of what he is doing. Massive shift. Massive shift between mission is me doing this for God and it's all measurable and I can chart it out and we can determine success or failure based on that. When we go away from that to realizing, no, this is God's mission in the world and I'm part of that. For 2,000 years, he's been causing his church to flourish. I want to be part of that. If you want to know what in the world does it look like to be part of God's mission, just look to the Bible. And I'm not saying that flippantly. What were God's people doing when they received this from John? What were they doing? How were they living? They had radical views of marriage. They had radical views of singleness. They had radical views of sexuality. They were caring for the poor. They were radically, they were, excuse me, they were, they were recklessly giving. They were planting churches. They were dying. That's what they were doing. They were figuring out how in the world can I bring my faith into my job? And they were working that out. And beloved, the reason why they did that, they did those things, is because that's what Jesus did. He left heaven and came to us, right? He started meeting with people, right? He started planning to the church, right? He radically gave of himself. He cared for the outcast. He pursued people like you and me that weren't even on the radar of many people in the first century. You do realize that we are the fulfillment that everything that Jesus says is true, right? The first century church acted a certain way because that's what they saw in Christ. 
because he died too for people like you and me that we might live and be confident in him and not so confident in self. People who aren't trying to think every day about what I'm going to do for God and realize what he's doing in the world. Be part of that.